Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Dr. Kenneth Carpenter, Associate Vice Chancellor at Utah State University Eastern and Director of the Prehistoric Museum in Price, is the guest speaker. He first got interested in paleontology in 1956, when his mother took him to see the film Godzilla. I was so awed by this huge beast stomping across the screen. Today, I'm sure there have been children that have been influenced by the Jurassic Park movies, and some of them are actually about now coming to age where they're thinking about paleontology as a career. So Hollywood can have an influence on what a child grows up to be. Some people want to grow up to be lawyers, and which become Tyrannosaurus food. Some people want to be doctors. I wanted to be a paleontologist. And it just never outgrew that passion. Films like Godzilla and Jurassic Park pique our curiosity and inspire us to learn about the deep prehistoric past. But they don't always get the facts straight. Carpenter's colleague, Jack Horner, is the scientific advisor for the Jurassic Park film series. He's fairly knowledgeable. We disagree on a few things. He admits there are some things in the movies that he's not too happy with, that they kind of played a little loose with the facts, but it's okay. It's not science, it is entertainment. It's just kind of neat to see those big dinosaurs up on the screen in a very lifelike appearance, or at least as lifelike as we understand them to be today. I mean, certainly what we think about Tyrannosaurus rex has changed from the uh, first Jurassic Park and to the subsequent ones, as well as, say, the raptors, for example, now we would probably put feathers on them because of discoveries of related uh, dinosaurs in China that have been found preserved in lake beds with uh, feather impressions around them. So I think uh, if they ever do another Jurassic Park, we can expect to see some fuzzy-looking dinosaurs. Godzilla continued to inspire Carpenter into his paleontological career. I actually wrote a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek paper doing an analysis of Godzilla from a paleontologist's point of view, as if Godzilla was a real dinosaur and trying to understand its anatomy and whatnot. And I actually did figure out how it's hypothetically possible to breathe fire. Um, we know that a lot of animals create methane, and if it were... or um, if it was to breathe out this methane, we know that there are some insects called the bombardier beetle, which spray out a, um, a two-part spray that combines and creates an incredible high burst of heat, which it uses as defense. The temperature can be up to 500 degrees, which is more than enough to ignite methane. So I hypothesized that it, then that Godzilla could, in fact, breathe out a some methane and then ignite it, just like a bombardier beetle. Who knows? It was kind of fun, tongue-in-cheek. The big plates on the, on the um, back of Godzilla are kind of modeled after Stegosaurus in a way, but there is actually some carnivorous dinosaurs that do seem to have some bone embedded along their back, which, one, which I argued could be the ancestral form which evolved into the big plates of Godzilla. Um, as to its size... It's interesting in that the original Godzilla back in the 50s portrayed it as being, having really fat legs and was relatively a slow mover. And when you're about 400 feet long, which is kind of what I estimated Godzilla to be from, from uh, the movie, then it was anatomically more correct based on what we know about scaling than, say, the Godzilla that came out a few years ago with... Uh, the mutant iguana that uh, attacks New York City. Godzilla had a big influence in his life, and eventually led Carpenter to international recognition. He is well known for his research into early Cretaceous dinosaurs, armored dinosaurs, and dinosaur reproduction. He has published 11 books, including Tyrannosaurus Rex, The Tyrant King, with paleontologist Peter Larson. 
the short forelimbs of T. rex have presented a problem for paleontologists. T. rex is a kind of an interesting animal. At one time it was thought to be extremely rare, and uh, beginning about uh, in the early 1990s, people began to go out and actively look for them, and it turned out that they weren't as rare as was once thought. They're nowhere as common as, say, the plant-eating dinosaurs like Triceratops or Edmontosaurus. But nevertheless, we have found quite a few skeletons, and in fact, um, there's parts of a T-Rex have been found uh, just um, west of Price, about uh, 50 miles. So T-Rex was also a Utah native. Um, the arms have always been problematic. People point out the fact that they're rather short. Well, that's true compared to the size of the animal, but if you compare it to the size of a human arm, it's actually about the same length. And people have assumed that because it's rather proportionally small, then that this was a rather useless appendage, but that's not necessarily so. When we look at the bone structure itself, it's a very heavily um, massive bone. It's very thick-walled. And the muscle scars on it are humongous. It tells us then that it was a very powerful arm. And um, we did some work on, on trying to estimate the size of the T-Rex arm uh, muscles and how strong it could be. And the, the muscles were, I mean, the arm could probably have held close to half of a ton um, out from the body. So it's, it's a fairly strong arm. Now, why was it small, and why did it only have two big claws on its hand? Well, if the mouth is the killing part of the animal, then if it's grabbing onto a prey with its mouth, it can use its short arms to essentially give it a bear hug, as it were, keeping the prey close to its body while it's biting down trying to kill it you got to remember that the prey is going to be struggling and trying to get away. It's not going to just be passive and and uh, just let itself be killed. So having that short arm then is going to keep it keep that prey close to the body so the T-Rex could then kill it with its huge banana-shaped teeth. Uh, the teeth are rather interesting in T-Rex also. Uh, most carnivorous dinosaurs have rather long, slender, blade-like teeth. Those of Tyrannosaurus are more like a banana. And in fact, you could call it a, a giant reptile with a mouthful of killer bananas. <laughs> they're very long, they're very broad, and they're very powerful, and it indicates that it could easily chomp through bone. When I was at, in Colorado at the Denver Museum, I described a specimen we had there of a duck-billed dinosaur that had a big chunk taken out of its tail. And... It had survived the attack. Uh, there's regrowth of bone around the injury. But the pattern of the injury matched like, just perfectly with the spacing and the shape and size of an adult T. rex tooth. So we do know then that T. rex could, in fact, be an active predator, despite the fact that there have been some people who have said, well, it's so big and so slow and its arms are so small that it had to have been the scavenger. Well, we got scientific evidence that proves beyond question of doubt that T-Rex could be and did actively hunt. I wrongly guessed that was his favorite dinosaur. My favorite dinosaurs are the big, ugly ones, the Ankylosaurus, because nobody loves them. They're very homely-looking, probably with a face that only a mother could love. They're rather crunchy on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside, I suspect, because they've got all that armor on the outside. Whether a carnivore like Tyrannosaurus could get through all that armor is something we don't really know. We'd need a time machine. But I suspect that if uh, one of the ankylosaurs were to die from natural causes or some other reason that uh, if it could be flipped over on its belly, then it might give a Tyrannosaurus something pleasant to nibble on. Determining the purpose and advantage of armor on Ankylosaurus and the related dinosaur, Steglosaurus, is an interesting area of current research, says Carpenter. At one time, it was just thought of as just being for um, protection against large predators, but now there are some indications that there 
that some of this armor may have had other uses, such as, at least in the stegosaurs, that the big plates on their back may have served um, species recognition. Uh, certainly, you don't want to mate with the wrong species of stegosaurus because it's got a wrong kind of plate. They wouldn't allow it in this state and probably only allow it in California. But um, I think that other purposes might have been for controlling body temperature. Uh, certainly, we know from studies done with alligators that uh, they can, in fact, use the armor that's on their back to control body temperature somewhat. I mean, it's not as perfect as, say, the elephant's ears, which are really large. Uh, and an elephant gets too hot, it can flap its ears and cool itself off. We don't think that stegosaurs could flap their armor. Um, but on the other hand, since you've got such a large surface area, it's certainly going to be a place where a lot of excess body heat could be radiated away from, from the body. And they were huge with big and bulky bodies, likely weighing one ton to five tons. And so they were not very active. They were four-legged. They have uh, very small teeth for the size of their heads. Um, they weren't good at chewing. Certainly, if you compare them to a cow, they were far, far less efficient in processing the plant material that they were eating. From what we can tell, they were exclusively plant eaters, um, although it had been suggested back in the 1920s that, uh, that there was one form that was thought to maybe have been an anteater, um, using its long tongue to slurp up ants. The problem with that whole idea is that uh, when you're this particular ankylosaur that this model was based on probably weighed close to five tons, and I am very doubtful that a five-ton animal could sustain itself on just a diet of ants. Um, there's nothing about the claws on its feet that would indicate that it had the capacity of ripping apart anthills. So from what we can tell on tooth wear, diet was almost exclusively just, just plants. Dinosaurs got around. Carpenter says they occurred on all continents, including Antarctica and the Pacific Islands. Such as New Zealand, it's got its share of dinosaurs. Japan has some on the uh, north side. Uh, they were very cosmopolitan. They got around. If um, the continents were, or islands were even remotely close enough that they could swim from one place to another, I'm sure they did. We do know that... Um, there are some similarities between some of the dinosaurs of Europe and Africa with those in North America uh, in the, during the Jurassic period, which would be, say, about 150 million years ago. So up until that time, the dinosaurs could easily have walked back and forth across. Um, that was before the North Atlantic had split the continents apart. One of the most common groups of dinosaurs found are the duck-billed dinosaurs. They come in all shapes and sizes. They've been found in mostly in the northern hemisphere. There's only a few specimens that have been found in the southern hemisphere, oddly enough. They're extremely common in the United States and Canada, some in Mexico, and they seem to decrease in abundance as you go farther south for some reason. They're moderately common in Europe, and they're fairly abundant in China. In fact, some of the biggest ones... Uh, are known from China, and this is an animal called Shantungosaurus that was uh, probably 50 feet long, which makes it bigger than T. rex. So I sort of doubt that T. rex or its relative at that time would have done much with an adult Shantungosaurus. Juveniles is another matter. They're going to be soft and chewy and don't have any defense. They don't have armor. They don't have horns. It's fair game. In your opinion, in our research, what indicates the fiercest dinosaur, the fiercest predator? Fiercest predator. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I have no idea. In order to know that, we'd have to have a time machine and go back and then do our comparisons then. We'd have to develop some kind of standard as what we consider ferocious. Does it mean that it, as soon as it sees me, it's going to go chasing after me, chomp me up, or is look down, ignore me because it doesn't recognize what I look like as being food. There's all kinds of unknowns here, so it's really not an easy question to answer. I think a lot of kids, though, have their own ideas, and 
I've seen some arguments on the internet about who is the biggest and most ferocious dinosaur and if if for example Giganotosaurus from from uh, Argentina were to confront a T-Rex who would win. I've seen arguments about that. I've seen arguments about whether Spinosaurus from Jurassic Park fighting T-Rex who would win. And in the movie, Spinosaurus does, but in real life, who knows? All of the mystery is certainly part of our fascination with them. Reproductive behavior is another area of research with many unknowns and a lot of curiosity. Progress in this research is contributing to major strides in our understanding of dinosaur biology. The big question everybody always has is, how did dinosaurs do it? We don't know whether T-Rex had rough sex like lions, whether they were biting each other, or whether it was passive, so passive that people are, you know, if David Attenborough went back with the time machine to film dinosaurs or T-Rex mating, whether he would just sit there and say, well, do something already. Uh, We just don't know. Um, There is some indication, at least some scientists have argued that possibly T-Rex had kind of rough sex because there are several specimens that have been identified as females, and I'll come back to how we know the sex here in a second, where there are bite marks all over the face. Um, There's some but whether that's due to rough sex or whether it has to do with uh, territorial squabbles, we, don't, we just don't really know. Now, the big question people have is, well, how do you know what's boy and what's a girl? Well, if it was alive, you could look under its tail. But since they're not, what we have to do is that there are some other ways of telling. I had hypothesized way back in the 1990s that the T-Rex individuals that have a rather heavy bone, they're kind of heavily uh, built, must have been the female. And my line of reasoning was that if these uh, dinosaurs are pulling the calcium to form the shell out of their bones, then the female needed to have a large calcium reserve. Otherwise, what's going to happen? She'll have osteoporosis. And when you're Tyrannosaurus rex with osteoporosis, you're going to die. So what uh, happened about oh a decade ago is there was a discovery up in Montana, and there was this uh, woman, Mary Schweitzer, who was analyzing uh, some T-Rex bone under a microscope, and she discovered, of all things, a special type of tissue inside the bone that only appears in birds today, female birds today, where, when they are laying eggs. This is called medullary bone. And it only happens during the time when they're egg laying. So here she had this specimen that clearly has this medullary bone. So it was an egg-laying individual, which tells us it's a female. Well, when you look at the rest of the skeleton, sure enough, as I had predicted, it was indeed the robust form. So we do now have a way of uh, figuring out the sexes of of dinosaurs. There's been some further work, and that type of medullary bone has been found in other dinosaurs, and again, it always appears in the more robust heavily built individuals. Um, So we're slowly beginning to get a glimpse into the world of dinosaur biology that um, when I was a kid was unheard of. And, you know, people used to write books on on dinosaurs back then and say, oh, we'll never know the sex. Well, looks like we now can tell. And with the discovery of dinosaurs with feathers in China, we're beginning to see some differences as well. And so eventually I think we're going to even be able to determine color patterns and separate boys from girls from, from their feathers and the color patterns. So we're actually living in a really exciting time for dinosaur paleontology. And are you able to determine how many offspring that they have? Over their lifespan, or, or yeah, Tyrannosaurus. <clears throat> well, we do know that dinosaurs laid eggs, and uh, and and we do know that they did it in. Well, it, some of them seem to have laid their eggs much like uh, turtles and crocodiles, where they would f- um, form the eggs, hold them in the mother's body, and then lay them all at once. Because we find essentially eggs um, in piles, and these eggs for the most part, tend to be round, anywhere from the size of a navel orange up to the size of a small cantaloupe. 
other dinosaurs that have more of an avian or bird-like reproductive system appear to have formed eggs in two oviducts and would lay them in pairs. Now, modern birds have reduced one oviduct, so they only have one, they're only laying one egg at a time. And for a bird like the ostrich, it only lays like one egg a day. So laying a full clutch can take up to two to three weeks. As to T-Rex eggs, we've not yet found them, but we do have, have found other carnivorous dinosaur eggs, and we know that because we find the embryos inside. And these eggs do have a structure that's more bird-like than crocodile-like. And there have also been a, a specimen found in China in, in these lake beds in which there were two eggs preserved in the abdomen or in the pelvic area, actually. So it looked like it had been a female that was in the process of laying eggs and for whatever reason got out into this lake and drowned, which is kind of cool to know this kind of stuff. Dr. Carpenter will be talking about the science of dinosaurs at tonight's Science Unwrapped Lecture Series at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center at Utah State University. You watch television, you see... BBC is walking with dinosaurs, there's a storyline, although it's kind of a weak storyline because all you ever see the dinosaurs doing is either eating or fighting or eating or fighting, that's about it, or laying eggs. But there's a lot about the world of dinosaurs and about dinosaurs in general that we've come to understand, but kind of the science of it is not presented very well or done at all. And people are rightly skeptical, and so my talk is to kind of give people an idea of how we know what we know about dinosaurs and have them understand that it's not all fiction, that Hollywood might take and fictionalize it, but there is some real science behind it. And my audience is primarily students that are in high school or perhaps freshmen in college who are are struggling with sciences and don't quite see the need for it, even though they kind of like dinosaurs and they want to be a paleontologist. I mean, I will freely admit that when I was a student, I did not understand the relevance of, say, physics. And not until I became a professional and got interested in understanding how T-Rex arms work that I realized that I had to learn physics all over because there's a lot there in biophysics and in biomechanics of in joints and and levers and uh, whatnot that I need, and so I want to try to address to those students that if you really want to do dinosaur paleontology, these are the different sciences, and this is the math that you really should learn, and this is how it is applied. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Stay tuned for science questions up next. You must love your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. It's fun. It's amazing that I get paid to do this. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how a grassroots movement of Utah citizens helped derail government plans to base the MX missile system in Utah's Great Basin. First, this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. When the United States Air Force announced its plans in 1979 to build its new MX Intercontinental Ballistic Missile System in Utah's Great Basin, it could hardly have anticipated the coalition of concerned citizens that rose up in feisty opposition. As part of its Cold War goal of nuclear deterrence, the Air Force's MX missile system resembled a giant game of hide-and-seek. Hundreds of warheads would constantly shuttle between thousands of empty silos, forcing the Soviet Union to waste its full arsenal in destruction of the entire network. MX was designed to absorb the brunt of any Soviet attack, and the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff was blunt when he told residents of Utah and Nevada, we're sorry that someone has to be the bullseye, but you're it. 
Sites were planned in Utah's Beaver and Miller counties, with construction set to begin in 1983. The MX system would consist of thousands of miles of roadway and railroad, require hundreds of support facilities, cost billions, and employ thousands. Nearly all of Utah's elected representatives initially favored MX because of the huge boon to local economies. But Great Basin residents were divided. Town meetings were held where citizens voiced support for patriotic duty and economic benefits, while others dreaded huge population growth, rampant development, increased water demands, and curtailment of grazing and property rights. Utah activists sought to educate the public about the project's ramifications, with grassroots groups such as Utahns United Against MX bringing together organizations that rarely cooperated. Peace and environmental groups found themselves aligned with Native American tribes, downwinders, religious leaders, and conservative farming and ranching communities against a common foe. The debate raged, but public opinion steadily shifted against the project. MX lost presidential support with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. Then, in a final blow, the LDS Church issued a statement explicitly opposing the project. By the end of 1981, the MX missile system was dead. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Support for Science Questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu slash science. Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Elaine Taylor. Today we'll be traveling back in time to an Earth that is very different from the one we know today. 55 million years ago, the planet was warm and tropical from the equator to the poles. The dinosaurs were gone and mammals had taken over the Earth. Together. This is the Eocene, and today we'll be guided by three experts in the field who will tell us about why this little-known period deserves just as much attention as Utah's dinosaurs get. My name is Benjamin Berger. I'm the assistant professor of geology at Utah State University, Uinta Basin Regional Campus in Vernal, Utah. My name is Paul Murphy. I'm the principal paleontologist at SWCA Environmental Consultants and also a research associate at the San Diego Natural History Museum and Denver Museum of Nature and Science. My name is Beth Townsend, PhD, and I'm an associate professor in anatomy at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. Doctors Berger, Murphy, and Townsend all do research on the Eocene in Utah. We'll get back to their specific research areas in a minute. First, it is important to explain when the Eocene was and how this lesser-known era was the beginning of some major changes for planet Earth. Utah preserves a, a portion of the Eocene. The Eocene actually is a pretty long epoch. It lasted for 18 million years. That uh, spanned about 55 million to about 34 million years ago. Which means that it began 9 million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs. So when the dinosaurs went extinct, the mammals really became fairly diverse fairly quickly. And uh, the Eocene world was very different from the world that we see today. It was extremely tropical, extremely warm. Something kind of like the Louisiana today. Even the globe, the entire Earth, was they call it a global greenhouse. And you have evidence of tropical forests as far north as Greenland. The whole Earth was tropical, almost entirely. So the dinosaurs were long gone, evolution of mammals was exploding, and the Earth was tropical, even here in dry and currently chilly Utah. Still, putting millions of years into perspective can be difficult. So we asked Dr. Townsend to help us out. If you think about the Earth as, the, the, the whole history of Earth as like a 12-month time period, basically, if you were to think at the very end of December, in the very last day, at the very the last few hours of that day, before we turn to the new year, that's when you get mammalian evolution. And then towards the very end of that, the evolution of humans. 
Okay, so even though this seems like a really long time ago, for planet Earth, mammals, and especially humans, are new. Before the Eocene, in the time of dinosaurs, mammals were especially limited. But as our experts explain, a lot of firsts happened for mammals during this time. It's interesting to evolutionary biologists and paleontologists in general is because it's that time period where the different kinds of mammals that we're most familiar with today uh, in in scientific terms, we would call them mammalian orders, where the most of the modern mammalian orders showed up for the first time in the fossil record. A lot of animals that today you don't find here in Utah. So you find things like turtles and crocodiles. All over in different Eocene deposits across North America, and you would definitely see them in Utah. You also find things like primates. The first rabbits, the first bats. The first rodents, the first whales, true carnivores. Micromammals, tiny mice, primates, tiny insectivores like shrews. Anything that's very small, animal you could pick up with your hand. And some of the rhinos are kind of bizarre. They were what they called running rhinos. I mean, they didn't have horns. They kind of have long limbs, and they were kind of moved around like a horse does today. And they were kind of big. You also get a whole diverse fauna of um, artiodactyls. Those are the even-hoved mammals, so some early camels. The first parasodactyls, which are like horses or tapirs, zebras, that kind of thing. So in, in, in a sense, if you went back in time to the Eocene, you could probably identify all the mammals in an Eocene jungle. So it would be easy to go, oh, that's a bat, or that's some kind of rat, or oh, that's a little deer over there, and there's a little monkey or a little lemur creature in the tree. It would be easy for you to understand that. Just a whole bunch of different animals. It's a really fascinating time. You had some weird groups. Um, there's a creature called a Uintathir, and uh, the Uintathir, <laughs> there's some question about its relationship, but it was basically it looked like a giant hippopotamus. It had uh, six horns on its head, and then these like saber-tooth fangs that came out of its mouth, but it was a plant eater. There's a nice uh, skeleton on display in the museum in Vernal, but they were discovered out here in the 1870s and uh, kind of established this area as a neat area to find some really strange creatures. So a lot of people came out during the last turn of the century and really started to kind of look for some of these creatures. Of course, animals on our planet are made up of more than just mammals. One of the things that's interesting about vertebrate evolution is that the dinosaurs die out right about 65 million years ago. So this is about 10 million years before the time period we're talking about. And But, but there were always reptiles that were used to thinking about lizards, uh, crocodiles, turtles, and um, those sorts of creatures. They've been around during the time of the dinosaurs, and they persisted after the dinosaurs went extinct. There are snake bones, but um, they're not very common from the Eocene. There is um, a couple of different lizards that are found, um, like amphisbanid lizards that are um, legless lizards that are known from the Eocene. Most of the snakes are only known from their vertebrae because their skulls are so very fragile. The Eocene is really a turning point in Earth's history. Just a few billion years earlier, life began. Then there were multi-celled organisms. Next, these huge and complex dinosaurs roamed the earth. And then mammals reigned. These furry, warm-blooded creatures invaded every ecological niche and are the first life on earth that we can really relate to today. Although our experts all conduct their research in eastern Utah, what they hope to learn is very different from one another. I'm particularly interested in essentially how the animals lived in during the Eocene responded to climate and environmental change and uh, how that response can be observed in the evolution of the fossils that we see as well as in uh, proxy data, climatic data for paleoenvironments. We've been working in Utah since 1995, collecting in what's called the Uinta Basin, which is this large uh, basin just south of the Uinta Mountains. The Dinosaur National Monument is found in this basin. We are um, trying to reconstruct habitats that are out there at a very local level. So we do this multiple ways. We can look at the different adaptations that the mammals had there. So for instance, if we, we have a lot of mammals that, are, that we can assess our tree dwelling and our fruit eating or air insect eating, we can actually determine if 
these animals lived more in trees or if they're more lived in more open environments that were grassy, etc. What we do is we do a lot of comparative uh, analysis. So we can compare these mammals, these fossil mammals, to modern mammals um, through various statistical analyses and measurements to determine if they have an adaptation that is similar to what we can see in modern mammals. I use fossils to reconstruct the ancient world in order to get a glimpse at what the world was once like millions of years ago. In particular, I'm interested in the age of mammals right after the extinction of the dinosaurs. I study how we ended up with all these these different types of mammals that live with us today, such as horses, cows, dogs, cats, and, and even humans. I use fossils also to tell the age of the rocks based on what kinds of fossils I find in each layer. These layers are well exposed in the badlands of the American West, which makes eastern Utah an exceptional place to study the evolution of mammals. These experts share a wonderment about the past and a passion for their work. And even though they each hope to learn something different about the Eocene, the methods for studying the time period are fairly similar. Step 1. Be a stereotypical paleontologist with pick in hand. Wander countless hours in the desert looking for fossils and rocks that can tell you something about the era. I spoke with Dr. Berger while we were doing just that. We met at a private 200-acre ranch in an area referred to by paleontologists as Mighton's Pocket. It was discovered for its important vertebrate fossils in 1912. Collecting and research has continued in this area for the past 70 years. The owner gave us permission to explore the property for fossils. It is badlands and looks alien, but felt like we could be on Mars. The clay-rich soil is covered with a diversity of multicolored rocks, miniature hills with light green tan and red striations, and lots of fossils, mostly turtle and tortoise shell. So at this point in history, the Uinta Mountains, which are behind us, were coming up for the first time. And the Uintas are a really kind of unusual mountain range. They are the only ones here in North America that go east-west. Most mountain ranges go north-south. They're a really young mountain range. They started coming up um, around 50 million years ago, and they were the last sort of hurrah of what's called the Laramide orogeny. Orogeny is basically a fancy word for mountain-building events in the past, and that was kind of responsible for a lot of the Rocky Mountain uplift. And during this time, this was a big, huge basin sort of on the southern side of the mountains, and so all the sediment that was coming out of the mountains were coming down into the basin. I'm wondering if this is a fossil right here. Yeah, yeah. Great piece of turtle. Berger prefers studying mammals over big dinosaurs that take much more patience to excavate. A pain because they're so big uh-huh. <laughs> that you know it takes many years to actually get one out of the ground, get it prepared. It, it, it does. It <laughs> takes that long. Yeah, it can take you know five to ten years depending on the dinosaur. And, wow. Um, whereas with these little mammals and um, smaller things, you can uh, have a pretty nice collection um, to study, and it you know it'll fit in your pocket. Um, studying these little guys, um, it doesn't take years and years to, uh, to get them out of the ground. So how many fossils do you think you've looked at? <laughs> yeah, millions. <laughs> millions? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Are there any that stand out to you the most or that you were just fascinated with the most? Well, let's see. I, the, probably the coolest discovery I made was I found um, um, up in Wyoming a small primate skull that I described a number of years ago. And that one was pretty cool because it was a, uh, one of these little primates. And up to that point, it was thought that it had a very sort of short nose, very sort of rounded head. We found the skull. It had a very large nose uh, and large nasal area, large nasal bones. Yes, they were right there. Oh, yeah. They're just all over. And so that was kind of cool because it's unexpected. So that's usually the really cool um, fossils is something that's that's different that you don't expect. So, but yeah, look at how thick that is. I mean, that was a big, yeah. a big turtle. I mean, yeah, how big do you think they big. were? So okay, how would you compare really them? To, large. What would you compare them to today? Uh, um, the size, these 
turtles and tortoises out here. Yeah, so they get they get pretty big. Mm -hmm. So they get you know manhole cover sized. But um, there's one that was recently described from the um, Paleocene, same time span it from Colombia, and it was say uh, dinner table size. And uh, this is from the same deposits that produced the giant snake that wow. um, um, there's an exhibit at the Smithsonian. Recently. So there's a giant snake in this area? Well, we haven't found anything that big. Uh -huh. So that was during the same time period down in Colombia, so down near the equator. Step two, classify what you found. This step may not be as straightforward as it seems, as Dr. Beth Townsend explains. Because for some reason there's not a lot of vegetation in many areas, the fossils are just, they just bubble up through the ground. They just erode out of the ground. We find new stuff all of the time, and it's kind of shocking. It always happens, almost on a daily basis. Someone comes back into camp. So what we do is after we collect during the day, we come back to camp, we make dinner, and then we take all of our fossils out, and we do an initial cataloging. We do an initial identification so we can make sure that we know what we have each day. So it's, it, it happens. We have no idea what this is. <laughs> Step three. Take the raw data, do some number crunching, and figure out what the fossils can reveal about the larger trends during the era, like mammalian evolution, migration, and climate change. The fossil record is a mosaic of movement of biogeography and the migration of mammals and plants around the world. And I think that uh, the Eocene and also mammalian evolution is, is really interesting paleontologically, and it, it's oftentimes downplayed. The general public really just thinks about things like dinosaurs usually. So I think that uh, there's, a, there's a huge, well, there's 65 million years of time since the end of the non-avian dinosaurs, as they say now, to present time. So there's a huge, there's a huge amount of, of global uh, paleo-environmental change, climatic change, and evolution, which happened. And, you know, humans were only around, Homo sapiens has only been around for the last 100,000 years of it. So there's a lot to learn. As this time period progressed from the very beginning to the Eocene to, towards the end at 34, around 34 million years ago, you get a, a really interesting climate pattern. Right at the beginning of the Eocene, there's a uh, heat spike or a, a general global climatic warming that we call the early Eocene climatic optimum. And after this climatic optimum, you're going to have a decline. And But what's interesting is at the very beginning of the Eocene, um, and, and in association with this climatic optimum, you get this initial radiation or fluorescence of all these different kinds of, of mammals showing up in the fossil record. And so there seems to be a correlation between this climate, climatic optimum and all of these mammals evolving at the same time and radiating, just kind of explosive evolution occurring. Using the fossils, even those as small as teeth, and geology, researchers can reconstruct what the environment might have looked like. It's amazing to imagine that this was such a tropical <laughs> environment. <laughs> it's quite the opposite now. <laughs> I know, it's totally different. You know, that's what I find fascinating, is just like how the environment changed. And studying the different layers of rock, you can find certain bands or certain horizons in which the climate can change really suddenly. And the fossils are the ones that can tell you what happened because, you know, out here, unless you're finding these turtles and crocodiles and weird, strange mammals, you wouldn't really, you know, be able to kind of reconstruct the environment. So the, the fossils can't tell you, you know, what the environment used to be like. And so if you're studying really long-term climate change, it's, it's a great opportunity to to study it and see how things have changed. What's this right here? Oh my god. Oh, there you go. There's a jaw. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of these early taper like guys. But yeah, this is really nice because you can identify it. So this is the upper jaw, and this is um, a taper. And taper is actually. They're molars. They look like the uh, mm -hmm. the symbol for pi. And that's very characteristic of tapers. Even living tapers have that kind of interesting pie shape. We can tell a lot from an animal's teeth. We can see what it ate. We can 
analyze the isotopes in it. We can um, tell what kind of animal it was. Mammals are unique because it's fortunate the teeth are the hardest part in their body because they preserve its fossils well. So these are really nice because then you can identify it down to species based on the teeth. The teeth are really diagnostic of these little mammals too. And they preserve really well because they're made out of enamel. And so the enamel tends to be really resistant. And so a lot of times you'll find teeth. And the way to look for it is basically like a, they're really shiny. It looks a little bit like obsidian. Research on the Eocene in Utah wasn't always so micro-oriented, leading to confusion about what the habitat actually looked like. Dr. Townsend explains. When collectors uh, from the 1800s and early 1900s came to the Uinta Basin to collect mammals, they were only interested in getting the, the big, big mammals that are bigger than rhinoceroses, these big animals, they call them brontotheres. And the reason is is because they would take these, these big, uh, these huge fossil uh, brontotheres back to the Eastern Museums, like the Carnegie Museum or the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and they were something that could compete on scale with the big dinosaurs that were coming out of the West and being sent back to those museums in the East. And so for a long time, it was thought that the time that the part of the Eocene represented in the Uinta Basin only had big mammals in it. And it didn't make sense based on what we knew about the earlier part of the Eocene, that there was a lot of small mammals in the early Eocene. You know, I've been talking about primates and rodents and, and, and rabbits, etc. And those are all small mammals. They're not big. They're not big like rhinoceroses or, or large water buffalo, that kind of thing. So it's like, well, it, seems, it seemed odd that there weren't enough small mammals being found in the region from the Uinta Basin. So we went back to look for um, small mammals, and we found them, and we found them in abundance. Even after researchers realized the bias in the fossil record and attempted to better understand the collection of animals in Utah as a whole, there continues to be problems associated with collecting fossils representative of the fossil record. Dr. Berger explains. Now, what they're discovering nowadays is that that diversity is a little bit biased because the animals were getting bigger. So we tend to find things that are bigger. During the time of the dinosaurs, there were a very diverse range of mammals living during that time span, um, most of them very small. And they're discovering new and new fossils, and they're realizing that they're actually pretty diverse during the time of the dinosaurs. They just were small and get overlooked. After the extinction of the dinosaurs, they started to get bigger. And so they weren't being preyed upon, and they were able to start to kind of expand, get bigger. In that first 10 million years, you get uh, mammals that were getting sort of cow size and larger. At this point, it seemed like things were going well for the animals of the Eocene. And for the next few million years, that appeared true. They were continuously getting bigger. The climate stayed warm. But then something happened. They were no longer in the fossil record at that point. So the animals that defined the Eocene apparently were gone. gone. What happened? Obviously, we still have mammals today. Well, not necessarily gone, but many mammals that had been common in Utah were no longer found in this region. After this great extinction event, the Grand Kapoor, and then the mammal faunas changed. And then at that point, um, there was also climatic change and also different sorts of changes going on in the rocks, etc. that we can see. And then another epoch occurred, this was named, I should say, and that was called the Oligocene. So there were many factors that drove the Grand Kapoor. The Earth was cooling down a lot, and animals that had evolved when Utah was tropical could no longer survive now that the region was cold. Hordes of marine life died out during this time, too, and many scientists speculate that this massive cooling trend was driven by increased volcanic activity, something that we can observe in the geologic record. And uh, during the Oligocene, things were cooler. A couple of the groups that go extinct are we no longer have a very diverse primate fossils. So a lot of the primates in North America go extinct, and they see kind of a similar change in Europe. Those big brontotheres go extinct. The Uintotheres um, went extinct prior to that, but they were gone by that time. 
And then you start seeing the artiodactyls coming in, the, you know, the initial deer, camels really take over, and the rodents really diversify during that time period. So you get a really different fauna that comes in later on, so more modern fauna. Major global changes occurred during the Oligocene, 39 to 22 million years ago. Grasslands expanded, tropical forests regressed, and there were notable extinctions as the climate cooled. The most important event that separated the stable Eocene from the Oligocene was the splitting off of the Australasian landmass from Antarctica. As the oceans encircled the growing polar ice caps, the cooling waters spread across the globe and many animals that had depended on the warm climate of the Eocene became extinct in the Oligocene, which is sometimes referred to as the Great Divide. Tune into Science Questions next week for part two of Life in the Eocene, where we explore this climate shift and what it can tell us about climate change today. Thank you for listening. This program was produced by Sherry Quinn and Elaine Taylor. Production assistance and music selections by Clint Holgate. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable fruit production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Hi, this is Blair Larson, host of Fresh Folk. On the show this week, I feature the personal songs of Natasha Borzilova and the iconic songs of Annie Gallup. I'll also play songs from new releases by Loretta Hagen, Brian Kalanick, and Grant Peoples, to name just a few. Join me this Saturday at 8 p.m. for Fresh Folk on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that students retain content from an informational text better than they do when the information is embedded in a story? Did you know that when students are rewarded for reading across a wide range of genres of texts, it has a positive impact on their attitude toward reading? When young children are given a choice of books to receive as a gift, they often favor informational books. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. This is KUSR HD 189.5 Logan, KUSK HD 188.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 189.3 Richfield, KUST HD 188.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD 191.5 Logan.